I'll never forget as a teenager being given the responsibility by my parents to go outside and do a little landscaping, pull some weeds, trim the plants, and, uh, you know, gain a green thumb, I guess, which uh, was, was not something that would come naturally to me. And so I remember I went out one afternoon, I began to work on the weeds, I began to do some trimming on the plants, and there, there, there was a row of green stuff sticking out of the ground along the back of our home. And as I was navigating the weeds and the plants and all this, it looked to me like they were out of place. It looked to me like they were overgrown weeds. And so I just took the trimmer and I mowed all of those puppies down like a man. I just went from one end of the house to the next. And I took all of them out, raked them all up, finished my job, went inside, couldn't wait for my parents to get home and uh, to see the great job that I did and, and to get the accolades and the praise and the encouragement. But when my mom got home and she saw the back of the house, I didn't get any praise, I got grounded. Not really, because my, my mother's very, very gracious. But what I did was completely mow down some like important plants that she had in the back of the house that to me looked a lot like weeds. And so instead of trying to navigate the weeds and figure out what are plants, I just took them all out and I thought it looked better anyway. And I learned that I am a moron, okay? And, and, um, and yeah, we still laugh about that today. And, and what I've tried, what I've tried to reiterate to my parents is that in taking out all of their wonderful greenery behind their house, I was simply trying to illustrate a parable that Jesus told years ago. I mean, can a, can a teenager not illustrate the Bible to his parents anymore? I mean, what has the world come to really? We know it as the parable of the wheat and the tares or the parable of the wheat and the wheat. Do you realize Jesus told a story about some wheat growing up in the same field as some weeds. And actually there are a lot of people who would instinctively wanna take out everything in the field and just start over just like I did. <laughs> and Jesus uses this parable as an opportunity to teach something that is critically profound and essential as we think about the kingdom of God today. We're looking at the parables of Jesus in this teaching series. And what we're discovering is that these parables aren't just cute little stories with like a, 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 a few little uh, encouragements to us. No, you know what? These parables and these stories are an all out assault on sin, on Satan and on the kingdom of this world. These parables are, are an assault on a generation of people who find hope in themselves, who are hoping in a kingdom that is temporal, a kingdom of this 
earth. And Jesus tells parables and stories not to just communicate a nice little comfortable truth. What we're seeing is that these parables are spiritual warfare. Jesus means business. And the story of the wheat and the tares is no exception as Jesus talks about why in the world today we deal with not just the blessings of God, but we also deal with the evil of the devil and the sin of man. Jesus tackles in this parable why you and I struggle so much in this world that is so chaotic and so messed up. Can we just agree together today? Our world is a mess. Politically, it is a mess. We can't trust many of our leaders. I shudder to think what would happen if we accessed every politician's emails. <laughs> we can't trust our judiciary. It seems many are driven more by agenda than law. It seems like our media is just completely out of control and we get less news today than we do commentary. It seems like our educational system at the highest levels of education are driven many times by agenda more than education. We, we look at our financial sectors and, and we find ongoing greed. We look at the business world and what many are navigating and it's, listen, our world is a mess. But it's always been a mess. Do you realize that during the time of Jesus, there was a general understanding that the world was a mess? <laughs> Do you realize for those closest followers of Jesus, we call them the disciples, those closest disciples of Jesus, they would, they would categorize the world as a mess do you realize that there's always been religious hypocrisy? Do you realize there's always been political corruption? Do you realize there's always been agendas in education? Do you realize our world has always been a mess ever since sin entered into it? And so there's some measure of frustration or exasperation or or even callousness when, when we deal with just the messed up nature of the world that we live in, of our schools, our, our, our businesses, our homes, our communities, we, we often grow weary, frustrated, even callous. And there's two dangers when we encounter and confront this world that we live in. One danger for some of us, those of us who are Christ followers, is that we become so, so frustrated, so exasperated, so discouraged that it impacts negatively our faith, our obedience, our generosity, our service, because we, we just feel overwhelmed and we feel frustrated like God's not doing anything. We ask God why, and, and we don't have an immediate answer. So we get frustrated, discouraged, and it renders us ineffective. That's a real danger as we confront the dysfunction of our world. Secondly, there are people who don't know Jesus, aren't following Jesus, and, and, and they've never turned their life over to him. They never turned from their sin, never embraced Jesus as Lord. And they look at the dysfunction in our world, and, and they see it as an excuse as to why God doesn't really exist at all. 
What difference does it make to follow God, to submit to God, to follow Jesus? I mean, if God's real, then why is he allowing all the chaos in the world today? And some people lean into the chaos and the dysfunction of our world, and they use it as an excuse to reject God. And so wherever you are in those two categories today, I want you to understand Jesus has a very timely word for you because he faced the same response in his day, either response of frustration and exasperation or response of callousness and unbelief. And Jesus gave a story to counteract that. Again, we know it as the, as the parable of the weed and the wheat. The parable of the wheat and the tares. We find it in Matthew 13. If you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and turn there with me. Matthew 13 is Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about why there's so much dysfunction, how God's going to address it, why he allows it to grow up next to the righteous. We're gonna see here why and how God is allowing and working through the sin, evil, and dysfunction that's in our world today. And we're gonna see an incredible word of hope about the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, let's, let's pick it up in verse 24, right? Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. And when the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. Let me just say here quickly for context that this was a real problem in the uh, agricultural society in which Jesus ministered. The Romans actually had a law on the books that it was illegal to sow weeds in someone else's field because this type of sabotage was not uncommon. You know, laws exist because people are stupid. <clears throat> Laws exist because someone has done something that they should not have done. And this was a common thing that sabotage would occur in this way. And so the Romans actually had a law on the book. So Jesus picks up a story here, a parable that's rooted in the culture of his day and time. Everyone would have understood this parable. Everyone would have been familiar with this type of practice where someone would come and sabotage of a field for whatever reason, okay? And so on this particular occasion, Jesus is telling a story here and he's talking about a farmer who's sown good seed and then an enemy has come at night and sabotaged by by casting oh, just weeds, bad seed everywhere in the field. All right, here's what happened. Look at verse 27. So the farmers, workers went to him and they said, sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? Now, let me just emphasize here that the workers are not surprised by the presence of weeds because weeds always grow even in good fields. So there are always a few weeds you have to navigate. That's not the issue. The issue is the overwhelming nature of the weeds in this field. Their shock should tell us something about the bad seed that was planted in this field. It is overwhelming to them. They're like, they, they run to the owner of the field. They're like, goodness gracious, where did all of this, did this come from? All of these weeds, it was like overwhelming. Clearly the weeds outnumbered the grain. 
There's an emphasis here. Remember when Jesus tells parables, he's using hyperbole in most of these situations. In the, and, and, and what we have an idea here about with regard to the, the weeds and the wheat is that the weeds are vastly outnumbering the wheat. And these workers are just shocked. They come back in, they are, they are absolutely floored by the amount of bad seed that's manifesting itself in the weeds among the wheat. And so they come to the owner of the field and like, how in the world did this happen? We're not talking about a few weeds here and there. We're talking about the entire field is overrun with the presence of these weeds, the bad seed. And so check it out, verse 28, the owner says, an enemy has done this. There's no, no other explanation. No, an enemy has come and done this. And so check this out. So the workers say, well, do you want us to go and pull out the weeds? And no, he replied, for you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds and tie them into bundles, burn them, and then we'll put the wheat in the barn. And then later on, as Jesus was away from the crowds, the disciples come back to him and they say, hey, listen, can you explain to us what you mean with the story you told us about the the weeds and the wheat? And Jesus gives an explanation. It's down in verse 37. Here's what he says. The son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. If you're new to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, I just want you to know the title son of man comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It is a messianic title. Jesus is saying that God himself, the Messiah himself is, is is, is the farmer and he's planting good seed in the world. And the field is the world and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom of God. And the weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. And the enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil and the harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Now check this out. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The son of man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And so I have a word of hope for every single one of us today who are frustrated and at times overwhelmed by the dysfunction of our society and the messiness of our world. Listen to me carefully. Evil and righteousness exist together now, but make no mistake about it, evil is on borrowed time. No, evil and righteousness, they exist together now, but evil is on borrowed time. And Jesus wants every single one of us to know that he is in complete control over the affairs of the world and he has a plan and he has a purpose. Now let me highlight a couple of these things that I believe are so important for us as we embrace these truths into our lives. The truths laid out for us in the parable of the wheat and the tares. First of all, listen to me, all of God's actions are good. And your discouragement and your frustration and your exasperation, 
right? In those days and those moments where you're just so frustrated with what's happening around you, where you work, where you go to school, where you live, as you read the news, as you navigate what's happening across the country and around the world, in those moments that you get so frustrated, maybe even discouraged, just remind yourself over and over and over again that our God is a good God. His mercies endure forever and all of his actions are good. All of his actions are good. Let me give you a sub-truth to that. Are you ready? All of his inactions are good. Sometimes we want to take the trimmer to the back of the house and mow the whole thing down. But God won't allow it. And God won't do it. As Jesus teaches us here, you can't remove the wicked without impacting the righteous. And so we wait. And we wait with this hope and this certainty that our God in all of his ways and all of his actions, he is good. His actions are good and his inactions are good. Our waiting, if God decrees it, is good. May I remind you what the scripture says in 1 John 1, 5, I love this. John says it this way, this is the message that we've heard from Jesus and we now declare to you that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Literally in the original language, here's what it says. It says, God is light and darkness in him there is not. And one word after that, it's the word udemia. <laughs> it literally means not one speck. Darkness in him there is none, not even one speck. You ever dust something in your house and you think it looks so good and then the sunlight hits the room just right and you see all of these little particles floating all over your house? Just embrace my philosophy and don't dust anything. It doesn't do you any good. <laughs> Mow down the plants. You won't have to take care of them and quit dusting your house. <laughs> I want you to see what John is, is, is declaring to us that in our God, his holiness, his purity, his goodness, his love, his glory, there is not one little speck of darkness in him. There's not one speck of evil, not one speck of sin, not one speck of darkness in our God. All of his actions are good. What does Jesus communicate? That the farmer, listen to me, only sows good seed. Jesus emphasizes in this parable that all of the seed that the father sows is good seed. In other words, the presence of the weeds in the field is never the result of bad seed from the owner. Because all that our God does and all that he chooses not to do is good. Secondly, all of Satan's actions are destructive. Yes, there is a devil. No, he does not have a pitchfork. <laughs> but he is crafty. He is cunning. And listen to me, he is a coward. When does he sow 
the weeds in the field at night while the owner and his workers are sleeping. Do you know why? Because he holds no power over the owner or his field. He comes at night when everyone's asleep because if he shows up during the day, he is going to get whooped up. But he is crafty and he is cunning. And everything he does, he does to destroy. And the devil cannot overtake the good seed. He can't root it up. He holds no power or no authority over the owner or the field. He cannot touch or impact the owner's good seed. But what he can do is try to distract. He can try to to frustrate, complicate. He, He can do whatever he can do to try to frustrate what the owner is doing, to try to discourage, to try to overwhelm. And and notice here that the devil's work is always to destroy. His power is limited, his scope is limited, but his work is always the same. It's a work to destroy. It's a work to frustrate. It's a work to discourage. It's it's a work to prevent men and women from coming to the saving grace of Jesus. It's a work to try to frustrate and limit the power of God in the world today. Listen, we, we, we have to understand that the devil is at work in a limited capacity to frustrate, discourage, and destroy. That's always his aim. Remember what Peter said, that we should stay alert. Peter said, watch out for your great enemy, the devil, for he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So let me be very, very clear. The devil does nothing for your good. He is trying to destroy your testimony. He's trying to destroy your family, your career, and your effectiveness. And if you think the sin in your life, the disobedience in your life, the dysfunction in your life, The selfishness in your life is something to be softly embraced with no consequences. Think again, your sin, your enemy are working not to entertain you, but to destroy you. This is is what the devil does. He sows evil seed in the world today to frustrate the work of God. And so often we fall prey to it. We think we control our sin. We think that we have the ability to limit the consequences of our sin. We think that no one will know about our sin, that, that somehow that, that at the end of the age, God's gonna wink at it or God's gonna compare us to someone who has more of it than we do and we're gonna be okay. I, listen, I, I want you to understand the very, very, very powerful truth in this parable that the devil only and exclusively works to destroy your testimony, your family, your career, your reputation, your effectiveness in the kingdom of God. And as someone said years ago, the devil only fishes with attractive bait. I've, I've gotten in a little bit of fishing uh, since, since we've lived here in Florida and, and uh, my family and I, we love to fish for sharks. And I, 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 I <laughs> because I have no idea what I'm doing. It just seems like a great idea. But I, I, I caught a shark a few weeks ago and I don't mean to, I don't mean to brag, but I, I brought a picture with me. I just want you to see what a great fisherman <laughs> I am. 
Actually, I'll be giving fishing lessons after service out in the lobby if you'd like to join me. Um, I mean, listen, <laughs> that thing weighs multiple ounces. I mean, it, it, I mean, I had to zoom in just so you could see the power of it. Um, literally, I had to use multiple fingers to hold it. It was, um, it was something special. You know what I love about fishing for shark? Seriously, I love it. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's the easiest type of fishing I've ever done. You take a pinfish or a bait fish or a finger mullet or something, you throw it with a, with a you know, two ounce weight or whatever ounce weight you want. Many of you know better than I do, but you let it sit on the bottom. Here's what I find so intriguing. You, you, you've got a random little pinfish at the bottom of the bay. You've got a finger mullet that's dead hanging out there. All the other pinfish are more toward the surface. They're in schools. And some shark comes along one day and he's like, hey, look, a pinfish hanging out here all by himself. He must have been a nerd. No, all the other pinfish must not have liked him. And he, you know, and then he ends up right here, baby, right next to me, you know? I'm like, how stupid are these sharks? It's the only pinfish in the bottom of the bay. It's the only finger mullet floating there dead. Oh, wow, lucky me. <laughs> You just throw it in there, set your pole in a holder, and you know, when your line goes, you, you boy, you reel those bad boys in, you know. And, and here's the thing, you know how it works, right? I mean, those sharks are driven by appetite. And they don't have, they're not made in the image of God. They, they don't have the ability to reason. They don't, they, they don't process things like, like, like we do with, with the ability to have a relationship with God and to ask questions like, hey, why are we here? And they, you know, they, they're, they're just driven by appetite. And, and when they see something that would be good to eat, they grab it. It's, it. That's what makes fishing so much fun. And listen to me, so often the devil's work in your life and mine is the same. He's sowing seed in your life that is evil to distract you, discourage you, frustrate you, trip you up destroy you. And so often we fall prey to his work because of our appetites. And the devil preys on our sexual appetites. He, he preys on our, on our appetite for, for significance, for identity, for, for power, influence, he preys on our appetites for prosperity, success. You know, I mean, he just preys on these and he takes good, listen to me, he takes good desires that God has given us to honor and glorify him and he distorts them. He cannot overcome the work of the owner. He can only try to work to frustrate and deceive and ultimately destroy. And so I want you to understand in your discouragement and your exasperation where the evil is coming from. All that our God does and does not do is good and for our good. And listen to me, the evil, the frustration, the discouragement, the sin that is all brought about by our flesh, by the work of the devil. And Jesus is helping us to understand that there is a season now that we are in where God is allowing in his providence for, for the evil and the righteous to grow up together. But make no mistake about it, our God is not powerless. Here's the third thing, but he is patient. We have a good God. 
We have a, we have a significant enemy, but, but our God in the midst of all of this is demonstrating he is not powerless, he is patient. The workers say, let's just take out all of the weeds. Hey, it might take us weeks to do this. There's so many, but let us do it. And, and, and the owner's like, no, if you start pulling up those weeds, then you're gonna start pulling up the wheat with it. No, 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 just let it ride for now. And you know what the scripture tells us? Second Peter chapter three says this, you must not forget this one thing. I love this, don't forget it. Why is Peter reminding us? Because it's easy to forget in our exasperation. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like today. Our God exists outside of time. Time is his invention. I remind myself of that every time I preach. I tell that to our worship team. Time is just an invention. <laughs> Peter says, a, a thousand years is like a day to our God. A day like a thousand years. So look, he says, the Lord isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think, but he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. That means to turn from their sin, their folly, their, their foolishness, their discouragement. That he wants them to turn to God in salvation. And he says, because the day of the Lord will come as a thief, unexpectedly, boom, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve the judgment of God. Peter says, you stay patient because your God in all that he does and does not do, which is good and for your good is patient. And the reason he's allowing the evil to grow up with the righteous is because of his loving, gracious patience that there may be time for men and women to repent of their sin and find salvation in Jesus. He has a plan. He's not powerless, he's patient. But here's the last thing and the most sobering thing I need to share with you today. God's patience has an expiration date. Evil and righteousness grow together now, but a great harvest is coming. There is a great harvest coming. And I wanna make something very, very clear, Bell Shoals. The hope of the New Testament and the hope that we carry with us today is a hope that's tied to our gospel. Here it is, that the same Jesus who ascended to heaven bodily will return a second time bodily and he will judge the world in righteousness. That is our hope. You say, how and when is Jesus gonna do it? We'll just ask around, everybody has an opinion. Some of you are premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib. Let me just tell you, for the purposes of this message, I don't give a rip. <laughs> Let me tell you what you better hold to, no matter 
all of your logistics of your eschatological timeline. Let me tell you what you better hold to, that the hope of the New Testament and the hope of the world is tied to the fact that Jesus is coming a second time to reign, to rule, and to judge. That's what unites us. That's what unites us. I am the first in line to be wrong about how all of this is gonna take shape. But I am confident that I am right that Jesus is coming again, 100%. And when he comes, he's coming with his angels and he is coming with a sickle. Hear the hope of the New Testament, Acts 1. As they strained to see Jesus rising into heaven, this is at his ascension, after his bodily resurrection, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Revelation 1.7 says this, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes and amen. He is coming bodily. He is coming mightily. He is coming visibly. This is our hope. And when he comes, he is coming with a sickle and he will at that point in time, he will take up the righteous and the wicked together. The devil holds no power over Jesus. Our God is not powerless in these days of dysfunction, but he is patient, allowing the wicked and the righteous to grow together. But there is coming a day, dear ones, the sickle will fall. Here's what John saw in Revelation 14. I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud was someone like the son of man, same title, notice. And he had a gold crown on his head, why? Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he had a sharp sickle in his hand. And then I saw another angel come from the temple and he shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come and the crop on earth is ripe. And so the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested, the whole earth. Everyone who's lived on the earth, past and present, every single person, even those who pierced Jesus. And since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, Peter goes on to tell us later, what holy and godly lives therefore should we live? Mindful of these truths that Jesus is coming again and he is coming to judge the world in righteousness. Are you discouraged today? Are you frustrated today? Are you exasperated today? Have you found yourself asking why? Have you found yourself at times looking up to the Lord, like, okay, God, what in the world are you doing? Why are you allowing these things? Okay, hang in there. Listen to what Jesus is saying. The evil and the righteous will grow up together, but there is coming a day when the sickle will fall. And at that point in time, the Lord will make all things new and he will make all things right. He will make all things right. So listen to me, if you're a Christ follower here today, 
You've turned from your sin, you've turned from your foolishness, you've turned from your selfishness and you have embraced Jesus as Lord. Listen to me very, very carefully. This sobering reality of judgment and eternal torment for those who fail to embrace Jesus as Lord gives urgency to our mission and unity to our fellowship. Jesus teaches us here that there is coming a judgment. There is a real heaven and a real hell. And for those who don't embrace his salvation, there is hell which brings with it eternal torment. This is a very real thing, judgment. There are gonna be billions of people who kneel before Jesus, confess him as Lord, but it's too late. And they will be condemned to an eternity without Jesus where they will be forever in torment. Does this not bring a sobering spirit to you? Does this not bring a needed perspective to you that all around us are people who are comforting themselves foolishly, who who are running after things that don't really matter, that they're not embracing the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field, people who are building up their own significance, even though it is built on a foundation of sand. Does it not burden you that all around us are people who are destined for a Christless eternity and eternal torment? Does this not put into perspective that some of you don't like every single song we do on a Sunday or the shoes that we wear or, 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 or the model that we're embracing or the missions fervency that we're promoting? Let me just say this, get over yourself. We live in a world with people going to hell, hell. Forever, no hope. Torment forever. So you say, you know, I'm not putting my chairs in my small group room in circles so we can have conversation. No, we're gonna stay like this. And if you all gonna lead a, a discipleship emphasis here where we're doing life together, I'm out. Well, go somewhere else to a church that's not reaching people for Jesus. It's gonna comfort all of your preferences. We're gonna preach a gospel of judgment, of an eternal hell and salvation. This may surprise you. I've never been in a church where I've agreed with everything. You say, you're the pastor. Yeah, you think I get to just do whatever I wanna do? We have 8,000 shareholders at Bell Shoals. It's not about me. It's not about you. Jesus did not shed his blood so that you and I could be perfectly comfortable and temporarily satisfied on our way to his kingdom. He shed his blood so that you and I could be delivered from a place of eternal torment and judgment. And he rallied us together, gave us his spirit so that salt and light, we could get out into this world and do something about it. See, other times we're frustrated, times we're discouraged, times we're exasperated. Of course there are. But we are the church and the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against us. 
We are the church and the enemy sowing weeds in the field will not prevail against us. We are the church and we have the only hope that people desperately need. And if we rally around that mission, we rally around that vision, we rally around that hope, then we can agree to disagree on all the secondary things because God will always anoint and bless his people who are focused on the work of the gospel. And that is what we are all about at Bell Shoals. That's what we are all about. These truths are so sobering and they give unity to our fellowship and urgency to our mission. Let's rally together today.